episode 115, I Scream. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a September 8th, 2010 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. summer comes to a close, we pay tribute to its most tasty aspect, ice cream. Throughout the ages, frozen desserts have pleased the palates of the rich and powerful. But in Manhattan, Kansas, farm kids brought ice cream to the masses. Join curator Laurel Fritch and me as we examine an ice cream box from Kansas State University. How did folks in Kansas make ice cream before freezers were invented? And is there really a difference between ice cream and custard? I left the boys, the screams and kids. Then he's back. Or I guess I'm back. After one year of well-meaning substitutes, I'm back as host of the Cool Things Podcast. You thought I was fired, but you were wrong. Find out where I've been for the last 12 months. Finally, join us for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White when we connect the small-town newspaper editor to the king of the Trekkies, Gene Roddenberry. In the 1960s, this guy created a relatively unpopular TV series called Star Trek. Today, the franchise is stuck in warp drive. Did William Allen White inspire the character of Dr. Bones? Or was he more of a Commander Riker? But first, I scream. Today we are discussing a half-gallon paper ice cream box. The box is purple and depicts a seriously angry cat on the side. And that would be Willie the Wildcat. Uh, the box was manufactured for use at Call Hall Dairy Bar on the campus of Kansas State University in Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, all right, Laurel, everybody loves ice cream. In fact, many psychologists recommend that you deliver bad news while eating ice cream to reduce anxiety. But how long has ice cream been around? Did ice cream exist before electric refrigerators? Well, basically, frozen treats have been documented throughout all of written history. And um, ice cream itself, though, seems to have evolved from chilled wines and other iced beverages. So think along the lines of more snow cones and things like that. Um, and really, the method for producing ice cream is dependent on a supply of ice. And gathering ice is really difficult. You have to go and find a mountain that has snow on it, um, ponds or lakes that are frozen over in the winter, and you need to collect this ice. Then you have to find a place to store it over the summer, usually in ice houses. Because of all of these difficulties with getting ice to keep it cold in order to make the ice cream, ice cream was really reserved more for the wealthier people. Right, those who had the means to get the rare commodity of ice. Exactly. Um, and uh, in the 17th and early 18th centuries in Europe, 
ice cream makers were experimenting with all sorts of different things with ice cream. Um, they weren't really good at making it yet in terms of really keeping it cold, um, but what they produced, they would try molding into all sorts of different sculptures and things like that. Um, is this the kind of ice cream we've come to know as ice cream today? Like, um, or is this kind of a weird 18th century it wasn't, it wa- it, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't quite as, as hard, I guess, is what you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, yeah, I mean, they were just weird things that they would do with flavors and things like that. They tried basically anything and everything under the sun. Um, they even tried something like asparagus ice cream. Tasty. Yeah, Tasty. yeah, um, kind of makes you, you know, a little smelly. But um, it really, it really wasn't until 1842 and 1843 when ice cream makers were able to produce ice creams that were available to the less wealthy people. And that really came about because of two major inventions. One was um, produced by Augustus Jackson, and he was one of the African-American chefs that I'm sure a lot of people have heard about that were at the White House Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And what he did was he added salt to the ice when the ice cream is churning. So basically it would lower the temperature for the ice and it would produce a much harder, better ice cream. Mm-hmm. And the other major invention was by Nancy Johnson and she invented and sold the hand-cranked ice cream machine and that completely simplified the ice cream making process. And as a result of that, people could buy these machines, take it home with them, and make their own ice cream. And so still getting the ice was a bit of a difficulty. But if you could do that, you could start cranking it out. It's so funny to think of the hand crank ice cream machine as being an innovation that made something easier. Yes, it it really is. Um, But, man, I'm really glad she invented it. Today, ice cream has many names. Some call it gelato. Some use words like custard, sherbet, or even frozen yogurt. Is there actually a difference between these names? Or is one man's gelato just another man's custard? Uh, Merle, Merle, there is a huge difference between all of these things. It actually hurts me to to have you categorize all of them under this big umbrella of ice cream. They're all frozen. They are. They are all frozen desserts. But the differences come in with the amount of dairy and eggs that they all contain. So something like frozen yogurt is made from yogurt. So it has a really sour and a tangy taste. And now sorbet, on the other hand, is a really light frozen mixture of diluted pureed fruit and egg whites. Is sorbet different than sherbet? It or is sure that just is. The way? No, it <laughs> completely is. Am I just pronouncing is. No, it no, wrong? No, 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 no. No, it isn't. It isn't at all. Sherbet, in comparison with sorbet, is made with milk. So it's still the pureed fruit and the egg whites, except that it has milk in it. Now, ice cream um, is made with a combination of both milk and cream, and it often but doesn't always contain eggs. And that's a little different from gelato, which is the Italian word for ice cream. But the difference between that and American ice cream is that it doesn't have as much air in it, and so it's a lot denser in texture. And then frozen custard, oh, frozen custard is gorgeous. And it is a lot richer and a lot creamier than your standard ice cream. And a lot higher and caloric th- And that's intake. Exactly. That's the exact reason why. It has a lot more butterfat, and it always mm-hmm. contains mm-hmm. eggs. 
Laurel, can you tell us why a university like Kansas State University on the hot, dusty plains of Kansas, what are they doing in the ice cream business? Well, I mean, really, why wouldn't you get into the ice cream business? Um, I mean, it's it's great. I like ice cream. You like ice cream. Everybody loves ice cream. Um, it tastes great on a hot, sticky, nasty day in Kansas, which can often occur. Um, and also, I mean, you can make money selling it because everybody loves it, right? Mm-hmm. K-State was founded just before the start of the Civil War in 1860, and it was founded as Bluemont Central College. And Bluemont really focused on teaching agriculture, science, and engineering. And K-State has maintained this focus on agriculture even to this day. And so as part of their degree requirements, both now and back then, K-State agriculture science students are required to learn all about the dairy industry. And so they do things like, you know, take care of the cows and stuff like that. Um, And the best way of really learning is by doing things. And so students also learn how to collect milk, how to use that milk then to produce a number of different kinds of dairy products. So it was ag students in 1901 who began to sell some of the dairy products that they produced. And so sales were so strong because butter and milk and having all those things readily accessible on campus was so popular that in 1923, the department decided to open up a little organized dairy outlet And in 1933, they dedicated a dairy barn specifically for that sort of purpose. And um, as you mentioned, Cal Hall has has become the shop's new home. And they built that in 1964. All right, Laurel, my final question. Ice cream flavors have become quite exotic with ingredients and names. Often an ice cream name tells you almost nothing about the ingredients or flavor. For example, what the heck is really in Rocky Road? I don't really know. So I'm going to give you the the flavor name, and I want you to guess the primary ingredient uh, in that ice cream. We'll start with uh, uh, actually a product that is sold at um, Call Hall, Purple Pride. What is Purple Pride? Um, it's great flavored ice cream. Is that right? No, that's incorrect. Is it actually black currant or blackberry? It's blueberry. Blueberry. Apparently blueberry looks purple when you put it in ice cream. Yeah, I'm not surprised. All right, my next one is Van Helsing's Delight. What is the primary ingredient in Van Helsing's Delight? I'm going to go with blood red orange juice. Yeah, probably more creative than what's actually in there. Uh, Actually, it's garlic. Uh, In California, they have festivals where uh, they make garlic-flavored ice cream. Yeah. Gilroy, right? Gilroy, California? Yeah. 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 That sounds awful. Who would eat that? Yeah. Well, you know, actually, you know, garlic has a really nice sweet flavor when it's caramelized, so I'd I'd give it a try. Would you? I would give it a try, yeah. Uh, Here's one for you. Wisconsin Surprise. What's the primary ingredient? Primary ingredient. That's a great question. Um, there are so many wonderful opportunities here. Um, what, what, I'll what, go what with is Wisconsin ch- famous I'll go for? with cheese, though. Exactly. Beautiful cheddar cheese. Exactly. I don't know if it's cheddar, but I know that, that in, in, the, in the UK they enjoy uh, a cheese-flavored ice cream. Well, that's not too far away from cheesecake. I mean, cheesecake-flavored ice cream. You see that all over. That's what's, true. What's so odd about that? I don't know. Cheesecake has cheesecake is a little different than cheddar cheese. I don't know. All right. Uh, finally, Club Sunday. 
club sunday club soda no no uh, it's a playoff of the club sandwich which what Ooh. makes a club sandwich a club sandwich is the bacon no i can't go there so, my my aunt would go there she loves that combination of like salty bacon with right. chocolate but i think it's disgusting though. it's a big gourmet thing now to put it bacon is. in everything it, it really is but i can't go there you know i love bacon and i'll go a long way with bacon but i do not think i will eat bacon in yeah. my ice cream yeah even for me maple syrup and bacon is a stretch so no and finally, the last in, the last uh, ice cream flavor is uh, Willie the Wildcat. What is the primary ingredient in Willie the Wildcat ice cream? Oh man, um, that's a good question. I'll tell you what it is. All right, go. It's cat. It is cat. It's cat flavored. Cat flavored. That's a totally made uh, up ice cream, it, just to be yeah. clear. Yeah, I yeah I I gathered that. <laughs> All right, Laura. Well, thanks for telling us about the um, about the. Kansas State University uh, ice cream box. Hey kids, he's back. Well, after roughly a year, a little over a year, Assistant Curator Merle Riedel has returned to his duties as host of the museum's Cool Things podcast. Hello, folks. It's great to have you back. And our longtime listeners may remember that uh, when you had to take your break here, then um, Morgan Shortle from our exhibit staff Mm -hmm. came in, did a great job for Mm -hmm. the better part of the time you were gone. And then we unfortunately lost her to the wilds of Iowa. She's off there with the corn and the pigs and the uh, folks like that. Anyway, uh, no, I, I just, we love Iowa, except you stole Morgan from us. And, give back. Yeah. And so the last few episodes before Merle's return, I it was my pleasure to host and produce, uh, but it's a duty that I will most happily hand off and hand back to Merle. So Thanks, I think for our listeners that um, would be interested in where you've been, uh, can you tell us where have you been for the last year or so? Sure, I can, Bob. And, and let me just say it is very nice. It's great to be back. Um, it's great to be back doing the podcast. It's great to be back at the Kansas State Historical Society. Um, for the last year, well, I'm a member of the Kansas Army National Guard, and for the last year, I've been deployed um, to Egypt. Um, we were there on a peacekeeping mission. It was our job to ensure compliance between a treaty that was struck between Egypt and Israel. Um, so for the last for the last year, uh, I've been sitting in the middle of Egypt along the Red Sea coast, um, sitting in towers and, and looking out over the vast nothingness, um, which was a great experience. It really was, and, and uh, it was it was a it was a pretty simple mission, and what was really great about it was while we were there, we got the chance to to do a little bit of traveling and see some of the local area. So uh, I actually got to go to Cairo, Egypt, cool. see the pyramids, see, pyramid, see the saw the Sphinx, saw the Sphinx, cool. went to the British, went to the uh, Egyptian Museum, um, traveled around Cairo, which is an experience. Yeah. Like no other, <laughs> and um, we also went to the Holy Land in Israel. Um, so saw several holy lights, holy sites, and uh, probably my favorite trip was we went to Jordan and we went okay. to Petra, Jordan, which is uh, um, dwellings or, or sort of uh, uh, tombs carved out of the side of sheer rock walls. You might recognize it yeah. from Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade. Okay, sure, the yeah. treasury, and so. We got to see that, so it was just oh, it was phenomenal. Great. That's that is an that is a phenomenal sight. But um, yeah, so that's what I've been doing for the last year, and I got cool. back roughly about a month ago. Um, 
So ready to get back to well, work? Well, the one thing we were interested in, is, of course, is did you listen to the podcast while you were gone? I did. I tried to, yeah. but I will tell you, my, our internet, like my mm-hmm. internet access was driven by an air card, and it was you oh, used the Egyptian yeah. telecommunications industry. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, as far as <laughs> you think your download speed is bad here <laughs> in the States, it yeah. could take, I mean, like... If you tried to ep- download an episode, a podcast episode, it would literally say it will be eight hours before this download wow. is complete. Okay. So, you know, I listened to a couple of them, but I just yeah. I didn't have the time to download them. Well, well, as you know, we enjoy doing the podcast, and we hear from listeners all the time how much they like it. I'm not sure anybody wants to wait eight hours no, to listen no, to a podcast. Uh, uh, wow. Anyway, so um, any major plans for the podcast now that you're back? We tried to keep it on simmer there for you. And you guys did a great job. You really did. Any Um, plans for now that you're back? Oh, well, you guys did do a great job. And as far as plans, yeah, you know, we've all been talking about this. We've all been talking about um, – we've really been using the same format, doing Uh kind of the same thing. And, uh, um, you know, we kind of want to change it up a little bit. Uh, try some try some new approaches. So uh, there's some things we're looking at differently, and and uh, but I don't really have them locked down yet. Okay. Um, you know, I know that Six Degrees of William Allen White is a popular yeah. segment, yep. and I hope I don't I hope I don't anger anybody. But you know, there's only so many things in the world that you can <laughs> connect that guy to yeah. before you kind of get tired of yeah. doing it. Well, and Nikayla's become our expert uh, solver on those, and yeah, she sometimes you can see her kind of roll her eyes like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I had to go Algonquin Roundtable." <laughs> Right, right. Or, you know, we had to go kind of our, our, our usual suspects to get there. So, yeah, and uh, I know we also had some uh, great feedback uh, a couple of times you were able to go on location with the podcast over the Baker Wetlands and some places like that. Sure. So, you know, and I'd like to do that. But, again, you know, uh, yeah. there's, not, uh, there's not a lot of time and yeah. funds to do a lot of, a lot of different yeah. stuff with. But, but mixing it up might not be a bad idea. Exactly. That'd be great. So. so, you know, my final word on that is just uh, people, heads up, you know, great. format might be changing a little bit. It's you know it's still whatever as long as you download it download it it's still the same process for everybody else yeah and if there's things people are particularly interested in or would like to let us know about just you know go to the podcast page on our website and give us some feedback We'd absolutely love to hear from you. so well, it's great to have you back yeah oh finally sorry um, I just want to say that I did appreciate uh, I appreciate all of our listeners who who stuck on while I was gone. <laughs> um, I know you're not listening for me. You're listening for the history by Kansas, so that's what counts. But uh, actually, I did get uh, – there were several people who expressed um, support for me while I was on this deployment, and I just wanted to say thanks to all those Great. people. Um, and, again, I encourage you guys to continue listening to our little podcast, which is – you know, I think we're getting quite a few downloads now. Yeah. It's really starting to grow. Great. And uh, absolutely tell others all about our podcast. You bet. Well, welcome back, Merle. Thanks. Now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me this week is Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman Hello. and Museum Director Bob Kekeisen. <laughs> Hello. Uh, welcome, both of you. Thanks. Um, so, 44 years ago, on September 8, 1966, the television series, series Star Trek aired before an only slightly impressed television audience <laughs> to commemorate what would become a cultural phenomenon and subject matter of the socially awkward. We are connecting William Allen White to Gene Roddenberry, the creator of the Star Trek universe. And Bob, you want to give us a little background on uh, Mr. Roddenberry? You bet. 
Well, Eugene Wesley, Gene Roddenberry. Basically, Gene. Anyway. Well, if your name was Eugene Wesley, you'd probably <laughs> go by Gene. Probably go by Butch. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, Gene Roddenberry was born in El Paso, Texas in 1921. His father was a police officer, and he moved the family to California when Roddenberry, uh, where Roddenberry attended both middle school and high school. Satisfying an interest in aeronautics, which obviously later would prove helpful, yeah. Roddenberry obtained a private pilot's license and later joined the Air Force during World War II, where he flew combat missions in B-17 bombers over the Pacific. So that's wow, good job, impressive. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, after uh, the war was over, uh, he became a commercial airline pilot for Pan American Airways, and then he followed in his father's footsteps and became a police officer. And it was while working at the Los Angeles Police Department that Roddenberry began dabbling in screenwriting. Uh, he wrote scripts for TV series including Highway Patrol and oh, Have Gun classic. Will Travel. Yeah, yeah, both of which I watched <laughs> as a young child. Uh, have, have Gun Will Travel. Have, that's a Western, right? That's a Western, So he right. kind of had a Western yeah. thing yeah. going. Uh, and in 1964, he developed the television series that eventually would spawn this media empire, Star Trek. Um, and yeah, his Western background, I think, came into to play there because he initially pitched the idea to television executives in terms that they'd be familiar with. He said it would be a TV series like Wagon Train, which was hugely popular at the time. Sure. Only he was going to set it in space. So that it was kind of a. That sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah, just Wagon <laughs> Train to the Stars. But you know, that, that's, that's really not uncommon that, yeah. that sci fi stuff had its roots in Westerns. You mm -hmm. always hear, oh, it was supposed to be um, wagon train in yeah. space, or uh, it's always like a you know a cowboy Western mm -hmm. taking place in space. Yeah, It's kind of a common well, thing. Well, there's a, there's a, I'm gonna blank on the name, but there's a great Sean Connery movie set on the moon of Jupiter. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. I apologize, <laughs> someone uh, out there will know random it. Random But it is ac actually a remake of High Noon. It's just mm. set in space. I um, believe there is a, What's the James Cameron film Avatar? Yeah, um, that's a uh, what is it? Pretty Mini much dances with wolves. Dances in space. with wolves in space. Yeah, or Pocahontas yeah, remade in space. Yes, yeah, so well, if Star Trek had been set in space, if it was like, uh, if it had been a Western set in mm -hmm. space, I would have been more likely to watch it. Like yeah. If it was Gunsmoke, <laughs> but on the moon, that would have been awesome. That would have been cool. <laughs> um, the original series, or. TSO, as the Trekkers refer to it. TSO. TSO, the original series, premiered on today's date, as you said, in 1966. And it really wasn't that successful initially. No. Um, it only ran for about three seasons, never had great ratings, and it really wasn't until the show went into syndicated reruns that it really blew up in popularity. Uh, it went on to uh, produce 11 feature films That's and incredible. four additional television series. Uh, <laughs> of particular success on the TV series uh, was Star Trek The Next Generation, and that one Roddenberry was really heavily involved with. And there was like three of them on at the same yeah. time. Yeah. You, like, uh, you could watch three different Star yeah. Trek. That's a yeah, lot of Star Trek. Four, mm -hmm. four Star Trek series. I think my wife has seen every episode of all of them, so uh, there's our dark little secret. She's a Trekkie, <laughs> huh? she, She's a Trekkie, yep, yeah. And unfortunately, Roddenberry didn't survive to see all of it because he passed away uh, from heart failure in 1991. And fittingly, on April 21st, 1997, his ashes were launched into space along with the ashes of 20 other individuals, including, interestingly enough, Timothy Leary. <laughs> Uh, some of his he, was a <laughs> yeah. he, he was a scientist, right? Yeah, a psychologist, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, Dr. Timothy Leary, so and Gene Roddenberry, so and 
18 other schlubs got their ashes <laughs> shot into space in, in 1997 uh, aboard a Pegasus XL rocket. Right. And I think its orbit actually deteriorated about five or six years ago, so it, he's disintegrated right. throughout the universe. They now. burned up yeah. in the atmosphere. Right. I love that. I love the idea of my remains being launched into space. Right. So there's, there's Gene Roddenberry. For Excellent. You. Thanks, Bob. All right, Nikayla, I believe you have a solution. You have a way to connect William Allen White, small-time newspaper editor, to Gene Roddenberry, the creator of the Star Trek Mega universe. Yeah, I wish I could tell you William Allen White was launched into space, but <laughs> that's a big rocket. <laughs> that's not the connection. And I wish it was through William Shatner too. That would have been that awesome. That would be cool. But no such luck on this one. Um, okay, so uh, as Bob mentioned, after flying bombers over the Pacific, uh, Gene Roddenberry was a commercial pilot for Pan Am. And Pan Am was incorporated in 1927. And it's kind of confusing. There were several groups that came together to make Pan Am. It's an airline. It has to be confusing. Right. Well, originally, Pan Am was meant to fly mail from the Florida Keys to Havana, Cuba. And they had to have several groups come together because only one group had the rights to land planes in Havana. And they needed those rights. And those people had the planes. So anyway. Um, the revolution fixed all that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> so the company who had the landing rights in Havana was financially backed by both William A. Rockefeller and Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney. That's good backing to have yeah. right there. Yeah, you want some big names there. Yeah. Okay, so William R. Rockefeller was an American financier who had interest in Standard Oil, of course, and amalgamated uh, copper mining. He was also the brother of John D. Rockefeller, the Rockefeller that everybody knows, and was therefore the uncle of John D. Rockefeller Jr. Well, in 1917, John D. Rockefeller Jr. attended a conference called by Woodrow Wilson to establish the length of a workday for steel workers. So apparently they were working 12-hour days. Other people had gotten an eight-hour day already, and it just seemed wrong. So Woodrow Wilson had to call a conference. Also in attendance was William Allen White, who was covering the conference for a newspaper syndicate. And White visited with Rockefeller Jr. and wrote in his autobiography, I must have met Rockefeller before this conference, for we were on pleasant terms. Nice. It's good to be on pleasant terms with a Rockefeller. Yeah. 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 So how many degrees are we talking with that? Um, I knew we threw four. in a Rockefeller. Uh, an, well, uh, I'm, I'm not counting John D. himself because right. technically since William was John D. Jr.'s, Uncle, that's yeah, kind of, that's a good enough connection. That's a Rockefeller. So I'm going to say that's four degrees. Four degrees. Nicely four degrees done. Yeah, Nicely good. done yeah. from South American Airlines to uh, to a billionaire's um, to a small town newspaper editor. Not too shabby. Yeah, I like to cover good. it all. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Bob, uh, you want to give the challenge for the next episode? Sure. Well, we're going to keep with a space theme yes. for our next episode. <laughs> so we're going to head to the cold depths of the solar system. And we want you to connect William Allen White to Pluto. And we're talking the celestial body, not, not the Disney dog. Oh, right. man. That could be a later <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Maybe we'll do that later. Yes. Or an added bonus next time. <laughs> <laughs> well, four years ago, as I'm sure everybody remembers, because it was big news, the International Astronomical Union disappointed millions by downgrading Pluto from a planet to something less than a planet. Whatever sure. that is. Like a planet. Uh, a planet. Yeah. Yeah. E-T-T-E. Um, and... 
I was out at the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles a couple of months ago, and my daughter bought a T-shirt that says, Pluto, revolve in peace. <laughs> Pluto was ripped yeah. off. Yeah, Aww. it was. He was he got, got the shaft. Isn't, well, that the, yeah. isn't that the observatory where they did Devil Without, or, uh, Rebel Without Rebel a Cause? Rebel Without a Cause, yes, which we showed at our summer film series. This oh. So I kept standing up and going, I was there. <laughs> I stood right there. It's Six Degrees of the Sundown Film Festival. Festival. <laughs> six Degrees of Bob. <laughs> anyway, so we're setting out to redeem Pluto and our first step is to bring in the heavy guns that's, and right. that's right connect Pluto to William Allen White the awesome. heaviest of guns yes. that ought to do it when we're done Pluto will be a planet again there you go so if you think you can you can connect these two giant misunderstood gaseous orbs <laughs> send us a, send a solution to podcasts at kshs.org that's podcast with an S thanks guys That concludes episode 115, Ice Cream. To see a photo of the K-State Ice Cream Box, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on Podcasts. In 1936, Kansas Governor Alf Landon hoped to become the next President of the United States, but he had two problems. He was filthy rich in the middle of a depression, and he almost always agreed with his political rival, Franklin Roosevelt. Come back in two weeks when museum director Bob Kekeisen and I examine Landon's speech podium, which is made completely of lead. Was Landon paranoid of attacks from Roosevelt's New Deal radicals or fearful of kryptonite in the crowd? This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Bob's a word that you say, you say it.